This week on the show, we tell you a little bit about the unknown hackers of the BSD years of old, papers we love to read from Clara Systems, dual boot home lab in the bedroom, in the te bed test bed, OpenSSH's 9.0 release, the operating system battle between OpenBSD versus NixOS, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 452, The Unknown Hackers, recorded on the 20th of April 2022. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow for online backups for truly paranoid people. And the BSD Now Patreon is also interesting to you if you maybe don't like ads in this episode or others or want to support this show in ways that we list there. Go to patreon.com slash bsdnow. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome. We have fresh content for you. We always gather stuff and we curate stuff and sometimes stuff comes up, sometimes uh, old stuff comes up. But this time it's definitely uh, from the 2000s, but definitely worth reading. Uh, maybe we read it back then. No, BSD Now wasn't around that time yet. So we no, talk about... Even for <laughs> 10 years yet. It's, yeah, we're not that old yet. Okay, so it's about the unknown hackers, the namesake of this episode. And it's talking about, well, the people behind the scenes of your favorite Unix operating system. Yeah, uh, so this starts off. Not many Linux come latelys know that, uh, but Linux was actually the second open source Unix-based operating system for personal computers to be distributed over the internet. The first was 386 BSD which was put together by an extraordinary couple named Bill and Lynn Jolitz. In a 1993 interview with Meta Magazine, Linus Torvalds himself name-checked their OS, saying, if 3-6 BSD had been available when I started working on Linux, Linux would probably never have happened. But Linux obviously did happen. Why? Eric Raymond, said, uh, who's an open-source evangelist, believed it came down to a question of personal style. In his brief history of hackerdom, he praised 386 BSD uh, to the expense of the crude version of Linux that were around at the time. The deciding factor, argues Raymond, was not technological, but social. Torvalds, even while practicing rigorous quality control in determining what goes into the Linux kernel and what stays out, nevertheless welcomed contributors and is remarkably generous in sharing credit. He says the Jolits had a very different style. Like Torvalds, they placed a premium on quality control, but unlike him, they seem to have tied uh, quality control by doing most of the work themselves. This inevitably made their release cycles slow, but it is also uh, an implied snub to any would-be contributors who took their contributions elsewhere. The Jolis' insight that the world needed an open-source Unix-like operating system running on Intel's x86 architecture uh, had been triumphantly borne out by history, yet outside of the Unix community they remained virtually unknown. In trying to earn most of the credit uh, for their insight, they lost nearly all of it. You know, the other BSD projects were around, and it's it's not like BSDs were closed off. But yeah, yeah they were relatively unknown. That's, that's fairly true, uh, as far as I can tell. In 1989 or 1990, Lynn remembers, the Berkeley distribution had gone from being available on the most relevant machines to being limited to what the Jolistes saw as the most irrelevant machines. There was a, an HP port in progress and pretty much nothing else happening. Uh, since we were looking for recreation, we offered to do it for the 386, uh, completely as a lark at the time. 
Intel's now ubiquitous chip design for personal computers, the x86, was then in its infancy. Uh, this daunted the Jolitzes not at all. The choice of architectures was obvious uh, to them even then. People did not. Uh, people said, "Why not do Dex Alpha chip?" But it is clear that the x86 architecture was going to be the dominant player. Some of the most promising people I knew at the time were hoping 386 would die an early death. Uh, it was a harbinger. Uh, that was definitely the way things were going to go. Said I'd been talking to Intel engineers. Their plans were to double performance every 18 months, and they believed they could keep up uh, with close to that for a decade. And it turns out they did for even longer than that. The rate of improvement on a VAX was not nearly so competitive. Uh, the 3D6 was already faster than the DEC mainframes at the time, and yet a senior researcher at DEC had, was asking, when will you stop using Unix on these penny anti-machines? <laughs> well, as it turned out, they made the right choice. And you know, eventually that work went into the regular BSDs, and uh, we got to the operating systems we have now. Mm -hmm. Ah, it says here that the Jolices released version 0 0.0 of 386 BSD on St. Patrick's Day 1991. And I think what, FreeBSD started in 1993? Yeah, around that time. That sounds right. Later on in the article, it says uh, the Unix systems then offered eight or ten different competing mechanisms to do basically the same thing. The question in 386 BSD was, how many of these could we get rid of? We increased the capability and reduced the size by a factor of 35. This slash and burn approach to the work on the new release spawned a series of articles in the well-respected journal Dr. Dobbs. These articles may have been even more influential than the code behind them. A generation of OS developers, including Torvalds, who is then a student in Finland, studied and learned from them. Uh, later in August of 1991, Torvalds posted a fateful note on a Usenet newsgroup devoted to the experimental operating system Minix saying, hello, everyone out there using Minix. I've done a free operating system just as a hobby. Won't be big and professional like GNU for the 386-46 AT clones. Uh, this has been brewing since April and is uh, starting to get ready to use. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Won't be big and professional like GNU. Nah, not so big. Just a little side project. Uh, you know, if this blind note represented a serious threat to their work, it didn't register with the Jolices at the time. Uh, but, you know, I imagine a lot more of that had to do with uh, AT&T and so on or why BSD didn't see the same adoption. Mm, yeah. Uh, but another condition they released, uh, or by the articles in Dr. Dobbs, uh, they released 386 BSD 0.1 on Bastille Day in 1992. I didn't know that uh, Bastille Day had such a connection to BSD. Uh, yeah. Like, uh, did they have jails then? No, they didn't have them yet. No. Uh, jails weren't till like 1999 mm. <laughs> uh, which actually brings us into our next topic oh uh, yeah so over on the clara website i'm highlighting a recent article uh talking about papers we love from bsd uh and the first one is on jails which is uh you know containing the omnipotent root and talks about how jails came to be uh and then the second one is about implementing a clonable network stack in the FreeBSD kernel, which is basically VNets and how that concept came to be. It's very interesting. You know, we, we many of us have spent a lot of time working with these two technologies now, uh, but reading the original papers that spawned them and, and seeing how the design originally envisioned what would happen, and then sometimes comparing that to how it actually worked out later uh, is quite interesting. 
Mm. Plus the stuff that's just added later. Yeah, and it can also help understand, you know, why was it designed this way? Or why does the command work this way? It's like, actually, well, if you look at the design, you can see that it was originally meant to go this way, and that's why everything kind of has that shape. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you kind of have to think about all these very different intrications, like, hey, we need to take care of this and that, and this all needs to be in the paper. And thinking ahead without having an implementation yet, or mostly a prototype, that's kind of looking back when you say, oh, look, it's all turned out as the paper wrote it. But back then, when you start writing the paper, you're not so sure about many of these things, whether they actually catch on or whether the implementation will be the same. So yeah, that's interesting looking back. Yeah, so these two articles are uh, good to get into the history bits, uh, but we also have more. Now the news roundup, where we have a dual boot home lab in the bedroom by the bed test bed. That's a, there's a lot of beds in this <laughs> title. Um, it comes from our very own Tom Jones and uh, from his blog that we uh, occasionally pick stuff from. And this one is um, reading, current events have meant that my workplace is now my home office. Well, you can guess what this might be. Frustratingly, this is also where I sleep. Uh, On one hand, this has resulted in a very short commute, but on the other hand, it doesn't mean that I'm living in close quarters with the computers I use for experiments. On the third hand, where did that come from, by the way? It means that I get to have a test bed in the room where I keep my bed. Of course, this raises the serious question. If I write tests from my bed, which bed is the test bed? Oh, here, really? (laughs) Okay, unfortunately, I only did one year of philosophy, and so others will have to offer answers for this grand question Mm -hmm. so uh, that's unusual for him uh, in that situation of needing to well getting to he loves perf uh, to do network performance tests on a real hardware thankfully uh, his friend tony was able to lend him two machines from his bioinformatics cluster to play with for a couple of months and so this test exists to answer questions of the form how does stock ubuntu compare to freebsd in the network space. For these tests, uh, to be as fair as possible, he needs to have an identical hardware for the test as possible so that you can compare apples with apples and not apples with bananas. Tony enables this by giving machines uh, built out to the same spec. Annoyingly, his target wasn't push packets as fast as possible, but was instead give a reasonable mix of a ton of storage and compute to look at DNA sequences. Anything weird in these computers is clearly his fault and we are very grateful to get to experience them. And so uh, Tom gives give us a D-message of this, these boxes. So typically uh, these are AMD Opteron processors, 128 gigs of RAM, uh, the motherboards, the Supermicro one, and a pair of SSDs on a PCIe SATA controller. And he describes the setup, basically uh, a switch in the middle between the two boxes and a control host to start these uh performance tests yeah and he's got a an intel x520 nic in the one machine and a melanox connect x3 pro in the other mm-hmm. yeah and so then there's a section on the serial console where he talks about how to en- enable them on freebsd there's a section in the handbook about it where he uh, makes a reference to and also uh, making changes to etc tty so that there's a a way to get to those the same uh, is done for ubuntu and so then uh, he can boot those it's a longer article but definitely interesting in the in the setup of a typical test bed and how to do the actual performance measurement and of course the results at the at the end uh, next we have the open ssh 9.0 release we are looking forward to that as always and it has happened so it was released on 
well, the 8th of April, not too long ago, and is available from the OpenSSH.com mirrors. And for the people who are still not using OpenSSH, uh, it's a 100% complete SSH protocol 2.0 implementation and includes SFTP client and server support. What has changed since version 8.9, you may ask? Yeah, there's a couple of big things. The first one is that the SCP tool will no longer use the SCP slash RCP protocol. It will actually underneath actually be doing an SFTP. Um, this is to solve uh, completely solve some of the vulnerabilities that it turned out the SCP protocol had because it allowed too much of the work to be done by the remote side, meaning the remote side could do something nasty uh, to what it was sending back to you. So the legacy SCP uh, performs wildcard expansion of remote file names. So if you do SCP host colon star to dot, then it would expand the star on the host on the on the target side, not on the client side. But SFTP doesn't do it that way. Um, you know. The problem is that this had the side effect of requiring double quoting of shell meta characters and file names, including uh, the SCP command lines. Otherwise, they'd be interpreted by the shell on the client side, and it makes it made it all a mess. Uh, so this is potentially incompatible since SCP, when using the SFTP protocol, will no longer do that expansion. Uh, we considered the removal of the need for double quoting uh, file names to be a benefit and not intend to reinduce bug compatibility for the old legacy SCP. Mm -hmm. However, another area of potential incompatibility relates to the use of paths relative to the user's home directory. Uh, for example, if you tried to SCP host colon tilde user slash file to slash TMP, the SFTP protocol has no native way to expand that tilde user path. But since OpenSSH 8.7, um, they've added an extension that exists in the built-in SFTP dash server that's uh, part of OpenSSH, although if you use a different SFTP server, you'd have to deal with this. Anyway, there's a protocol extension called extend or sorry, expand-path at OpenSSH.com uh, that if the server supports that extension, then it will be able to expand tilde user correctly. Mm -hmm. uh, if you, for some reason, need to fall back to the old SAP functionality, you can do that with a capital O flag. Um, but you probably, you know, that'll buy you a little bit of time, but I'm guessing that legacy support is going to go away and you'll need to fix your tooling. But in the meantime, to let you just upgrade, you can switch to that capital O flag. Yep. But the more exciting stuff, I'd say, is really the headline new feature. Both SSH the client and SSHD the server will now use the hybrid streamlined NTRU prime plus the X25519 key exchange method by default. So that's got this uh, ridiculous name now of <laughs> SNTRUUP761X25519-SHA512 at OpenSSH.com. Could be a password. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, the, um, the NTRU algorithm is believed to resist attacks enabled by future quantum computers, but is also paired with the X25519 ECDH key extension, uh, or sorry, key exchange algorithm, which was the previous default as a backstop against any weaknesses in those NTRU primes that may be discovered in the future. The combination ensures that the hybrid exchange offers at least as good security as the status quo, but means that you know if either one of them turns out to have a problem, you're also using the other one, and so it's unlikely that they will be able to break the key exchange. Huh. Wow. Um, Part of the reason to enable this NTRU prime stuff now, even though there aren't quantum computers that were worried about breaking X25519, is they say, uh, we are making this change now ahead of the cryptographically relevant quantum computers to prevent any capture now decrypt later attacks 
or an adversary who can record and store your SSH siphon or SSH session ciphertext would be able to decrypt it later once they had one of these advanced quantum computers available. Hmm. Uh, so by adding that robustness now means that you know it'll take a couple of it'll take a while for this new release of OpenSSH to be the default in all the different operating systems. Mm. Uh, so you want to get it out sooner. And like it says here, you know we want to have it to the point where Anybody who's recording stuff to decrypt later will, you know, the, uh, anything they captured before now, by the time there is a quantum computer, probably be too old to be useful. And just, you know, the, lo the smaller we can make the window of where uh, the, you weren't protected, but someone might have a computer uh, as small as possible. That's exactly the stuff we want to have from OpenSSH, OpenBSD project. Yeah. Yeah. But there's also <laughs> uh, some great usability improvements. So the SFTP server program now supports the copy data extension. This allows a server-side copying of files or data. So when you connect over SFTP, you can have the remote side copy a file to itself oh. without having to like download it and re-upload it. Oh, that's clever. Or can yeah, it, it can also be really useful? Can it also uh, like copy stuff from system A to system B, not going via your system, your local? Ah, uh, well, one? you could you could normally just do that with like SSH jump host or something to make it do yeah, that. Yeah, right. But, true. Um, Right. Importantly, though, is just being able to do basically a local side copy uh, command on the remote server instead of having to transfer the data. That could uh, really speed things up. Mm -hmm. Very good. Uh, and so, yeah, they added the CP command to allow SFP clients to perform that server side copy. Okay, good. And there's a bunch of uh, bug fixes in there as well as portability notes, uh, but we link to the uh, release notes in full so you can check them out as a whole. Yeah, it doesn't look to be anything too major. Mm hmm. Good, so upgrading your SSH daemon is a good idea. Next up, something similar from OpenBSD, Operating Systems Battle, OpenBSD versus NixOS. Uh, Suline writes on the Data Swamp website. Um, so the introduction, we know her from the interview, we can probably skip over that. Uh, but her thing here is with the NixOS distribution. Uh, she writes, she's also enjoying using Linux, especially the NixOS distribution. And uh, that's probably why she did the comparison there in the first place. So OpenBSD and NixOS. Uh, let me quickly introduce the two operating systems if you don't know them. Uh, well, we know OpenBSD, uh, what it does. We have many episodes about it. Uh, but NixOS uh, is probably newer for the BSD crowd. NixOS will be soon a 20 years old Linux distribution based on the Nix package manager. It's offering a new approach to system management based on reproducible, reproducible builds and declarative configuration. Basically, you define how your computer should be configured, packages, services, names, users, in a configuration file, and then build the system to configure itself. If you share this configuration file on another computer, you should be able to reproduce the exact same system. Packages are not installed in a standard file hierarchy, but each package files are stored into a dedicated directory, and the user's profile are made by a symbolic link and many environment variables to permit programs to find the libraries or dependencies. Ah, yes. Okay. Then I uh, can make the distinction. So what's about performance? OpenBSD is lacking hardware acceleration for encoding and decoding video. This makes it a lot slower slower when working with video. Interactive. Although most of that acceleration would uh, come from user space software. Like it doesn't necessarily require a lot of special hardware support. Yeah, so that, know, that's true. Like, yeah. uh, it might be lacking the packages in the OpenBSD ports tree, but I don't think there's anything fundamental that means OpenBSD could never have that. Mm -hmm. That's true, yeah. So she also compares interactive desktop usage and I.O., uh, which also feels slower on OpenBSD. 
And on the other hand, the Linux kernel used in Nix OS benefits from many people working full-time at improving its performance. We have to admit the efforts pay off. Uh, although OpenBSD is slower than Linux, it's actually usable for most tasks one may need to achieve. Then she has a section on hardware support. Uh, that's basically what you probably guess. OpenBSD doesn't support as many devices as NixOS and its Linux kernel. Uh, but OpenBSD barely requires any configuration to work. If the hardware is supported, it will work. And OpenBSD can be used on old computers from various architectures like i386. Um, while as, whereas NixOS is only focusing on modern hardware such as AMD64 and ARM64. Uh, then she uh, compares software choices. The both systems provide a huge package set, but the one from Nix has more choice. It's not that bad on the OpenBSD side though. Most common packages are available and often with a recent version. Uh, she also found many times a package available in OpenBSD but not in Nix. So you have to individually pick uh, your choices. Um, most notably, she feels the quality of OpenBSD packages is slightly higher than on Nix. They have less issues. Nix packages sometimes have issues that may be related to Nix's unusual file hierarchy and are sometimes patched to have better defaults. Then on the networking side, network is certainly the area where OpenBSD is the most well-known. Its firewall packet filter is easy to use and configure and efficient. OpenBSD provides mechanisms such as routing tables, domains to assign a network interface to an entire separated network allowing the exposing a program or a user to a specific interface reliably. Uh, the performance when dealing with network throughput may be subpar on OpenBSD compared to Linux, but for the average user or server, it's fine. It will mostly depend on the network card used and its driver support. Then there's a maintenance section. The maintenance topic will be very personal for a personal workstation server, uh, not a farm of hundreds of servers, but for her um, experience, it has been that OpenBSD doesn't change much. It has new releases every six months, but the upgrades are always easy to handle. Most corner cases are documented in the upgrade guide. And uh, she's always confident when she has an update and an OpenBSD system that it will be able to perform uh, the update without errors. MixOS is also easy to update and keep clean. Uh, she never had an issue when upgrading yet, and it should still be possible to roll back to the previous version. Uh, she also has parts about documentation and contributing, but her conclusions are, I can't say one is better to the other, nor that one is doing absolutely better at one task. Uh, her love for OpenBSD may come from its small community made of humans that like working on something different. Uh, she knows how OpenBSD works, then something is wrong, it's easy to debug because the system has been kept relatively simple. Uh, it's painless when your hardware is supported, it just works fine. Default configuration is good and she doesn't have to worry about it. But she also loves NixOS, it's adventurous, it offers new experiences, transactional updates, reproducibility, two examples, um, that she feels are the future of computing, but it also makes a whole very complicated thing to understand and debug. It's a huge piece of software that could be bent to many forms given you are a good Nix arcanist, and she'd be happy to hear about your experiences with regards to OpenBSD and NixOS. Feel free to write her, uh, the blog has her uh, connecting well, well, the ways to reach her. Yeah, I think that was a good overview of the two operating systems. Mm -hmm. I've been, uh, I've heard of Nix a number of times, but never uh, really had time to dig into it. Yeah, it was new for me. So that was a good intro uh, to whet the appetite. <laughs> okay, Beastie Bits this week have a couple of things in them. Uh, for example, celebrating 50 years of the Unix operating system. That is a long time. Yeah, over on Reddit, they have a link to unix50.org which uh, apparently allows you to 
test a bunch of different versions, although it appears to actually be down at the time of recording. But maybe it'll be back up a little bit later. Uh, but might be worth checking out if you're just curious what it feels like to walk around in the shell on a 50-year-old version of an oh. operating system. Yeah. It'll be somewhat familiar and somewhat not, I think. Uh, still still I've seen a couple other places. Yeah, where's my LS command? <laughs> yeah. uh, then we have a post uh, from Michael W. Lucas, our great friend there, uh, about his Kickstarter campaign uh, for his book about how to write a book. Ah, uh, the Badger book. Uh, so he says, his results, my small low-risk trial of Kickstarter, where I hope to raise $500, was 1,768% funded. I guess there's a demand for this particular book. My back of the envelope math says that my total expenses would be about half of that. Uh, I'll keep detailed notes, of course, but for a work with no obvious audience in a field where I'm not known, Kickstarter made writing the domesticate your badgers not a financial loss. Plus, I've learned how Kickstarter works and how to assemble videos and so on for to promote it. Uh, domesticate your badgers is due back from copy edit in mid-December. Is this old last year, twenty twenty one? With anything resembling luck, I'll have the ebook for backers and patronizers before the end of that the next month, uh, and then the print will take a bit longer. I think by now some of the print has happened. I remember seeing a picture on Twitter of a giant stack of boxes and him being like, "I regret having to mail all of this." <laughs> uh, uh, my coffee editor has requested that I not send her two of my books simultaneously. Um. <laughs> uh, once uh, Domesticating Badgers is returned, then uh, it'll be time to start having her work on DNSSEC. Uh, so then the big question, will I do another Kickstarter? Uh, I will probably uh, kickstart a short fiction collection next year. If that works, I might both kickstart and sponsor the next OpenBSD storage book. Now, if you pardon me, I'm going to have to get BookFunnel integrated into my bookstore so I can send people some books and, and figure out the shipping. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's certainly a successful campaign. I haven't had time to look into the book, but it's definitely interesting to me. Uh, here we have in our next part, a FreeBSD virtualization series, a couple of articles where it dives into something called FreeBernetes, like FreeBSD and Kubernetes or a similar system. And there's a bunch of um, articles to detail how it went and uh, tutorials uh, to set up this thing. And we thought we would mention it as a whole, not individual articles, because they kind of belong together. So you can find the whole listing from our uh, show notes and dive into each individual section. Yeah, so basically this is going through the steps to create a Kubernetes cluster on FreeBSD Beehive VMs, uh, adapting the completely manual process from uh, Kubernetes the hard way and getting it to all work on FreeBSD. Mm -hmm. And then they also... Uh, then expand that on in this article to do the lightweight version k3s instead of k8 yeah so that's cool oh yeah Thanks definitely for, to, for writing that yeah and i thought it would be good since it's not just a description but also giving details about how it's done and the configs this week's episode of bsd now is brought to you by tarstamp head over to tarstamp.com slash bsd now and start backing up your machine so tarstamp was designed originally uh, because Colin wanted to back up his laptop even while he was on the road. The problem with backing up your laptop on the road with traditional backups is that A, you don't necessarily trust the network you're connected to to be backing up your sensitive data, and B, you only have you know, access to the free Wi-Fi or whatever. You can't upload a lot of data. So Tarstamp is designed to segment and deduplicate your data locally, 
uh, and then compress it to make as little uh, amount of data as possible that contains all the changes since your last backup and ship those off to Tarsnap. And it encrypts them all with the keys that you provide on your machine uh, so that nobody's sniffing on the network and nobody uh, who takes over Tarsnap servers in the cloud or you know uh, arrests Colin and tries to force him to do stuff can ever read your, your files because only you have the key. So it's a feature that you can, if you lose the key on purpose, uh, none of that data can ever be restored. So don't lose the key by accident because you're in the same situation as if you did it on purpose, the data is useless. But that's a feature, right? It's the only way to be paranoid and sure that no one else can read your backup is that this is the only key that can decrypt this backup and I have to not lose it. And I have to not let anybody else have it. And that's all there is to it. And uh, Tarsnap will be secure. And they give you the source code for the client so you can prove that it does exactly uh, what they say it does. And you can compile it yourself, but you don't have to. It's available in the package manager of literally every OS uh, that we could think of. Uh, and it's very portable code if there's some OS we couldn't think of. And the best part is it's pay as you go. So you put in money and you start doing backups uh, and you get alerts when you're running out of money. Uh, you can never get uh, a bill from Tarstat. All you get is a tax receipt. Uh, if you had to, if you're Canadian, you have to pay sales tax, uh, but it comes as part of the deposit. Uh, but it means unlike other cloud providers, you can't get a surprise bill when you backed up more than you thought you were going to or something. Uh, Tarsnap will never use more money than you put into it. Uh, and therefore you always have that control over how much money gets spent on your backups. Uh, the number one rule with Tarsnap is start using it. It can't help you if you don't use it. Uh, oh, we're uh, right into the feedback and questions now. And luckily, people still send us feedback and questions, since sometimes we have to uh, be a little bit more strictly shaking our heads and saying, hey, we're running out of material, but people still send us stuff. Thanks for that. Uh, yes, thanks to everyone who did send us stuff. Uh, and please do keep doing so. Yeah, feedback at bsdnow.tv, as it has always been. And the first one this week is... Uh, Jeff with a set of his checksum repair question and writes uh, Hi BSD Now team as always I very much appreciate the work that you do in bringing us great BSD focused content every week we'll thank you for still listening to us and don't find it boring I know you have said recently that you are running low on feedback and questions material and I just so happened to have a timely problem to ask you about so a couple of years ago he's uh, bought a Super Micro motherboard with an integrated Atom Intel CPU to play around. Uh, that's this turned into his home NAS server eventually, and he recently upgraded to FreeBSD 13.0 release. And uh, with those projects that turn into production machines, he cobbled together the reminder of the hardware that he has, uh, with the exception of some Seagate hard drives, uh, with spare parts yet laying around, which includes memory, which decide. Uh, oh, which decided to finally give up the ghost at last night sometime after my weekly scrub started, uh, causing the host to crash. And I woke this morning to angry BIOS post beeps. <sighs> after finding a suitable replacement for the dead memory, almost uh, amongst other spare parts, it was back up and running and the scrub resumed. I noticed a short time later that the scrub had found checksum errors based on the following output that he provided. Uh, he believes the errors were successfully recovered. Bottom of zpool status, there will be a message saying there are X errors. 
and uh, if you ran and it would tell you to run zpool status with a capital with a dash v and then it would print out a list of the files that uh, zfs was not able to repair and you could restore just those files from your backups um, but uh, all your stuff was fine so as it recommends there uh, it says determine if the device needs to be replaced at this point we don't think so um, and clear the errors by running zpool clear and the pool name so that'll reset those error counters back to zero and then I would recommend running another scrub, uh, which will scan all the data. If it finds no more checksum errors, you're good and you don't have to worry. If it does, uh, then you might uh, clear that and try once more. And uh, if it stops finding errors, great. If it keeps finding errors, there might be something wrong. Yep. So nothing to worry about. And uh, uh, he wrote that he keeps uh, backs up backups in Tarsnap so that he could uh, restore if something went wrong. But in this case, it didn't. Okay, uh, thanks for that feedback. And no, no, you want to read, there's a second question. Oh, there's more. Um, Under the, uh, all the Oh, uh, yes, further down. The, have I interpreted the output correctly that the errors were repaired? Assuming so, this is of course a credit to the resilience of ZFS. But naturally, as mentioned, all of the data that can't be replaced is backed up with Tarsnap. One additional question that I think uh, before. So the first part there, um, yes. One of the ways you can tell is, so you can see you have your pool and it has a read, write and checksum count. And then the VDEV called mir zero has a read, write and checksum count. And then each disc has one. And you can see you had five checksum errors on the first disc and 10 checksum errors on the second disc. If one of those checksum, if, if one of those had been the same block on both sides of a mirror, and so ZFS couldn't recover the data, then that would have shown up as a checksum error on the mir zero level, right? Because, yeah, so individual disks had a problem, but the opposite disk had the right data, and so it was able to recover it and everything's fine. And if it hadn't, you would have seen the error percolate up to the VDEV level, and that's when you probably VDEV, would have seen yeah. uh, status-v output a list of files uh, that were damaged by it. Uh, so yes, it was able to correct them all, and you're fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he has extra question. The RAM was pulled from one of my previous desktop PCs and therefore was plain consumer grade RAM. Uh, yes, could ECC RAM have possibly prevented the checksum errors seen here? No. Uh, well, um, so that depends. Uh, we don't know that the checksum error was caused by the bad RAM uh, directly. Like we don't know that it was something that corrupted in RAM and written to disk wrong or something. Uh, although it's possible that the the checksum errors were caused by the system crashing and having to to come back up uh or whatever so it's hard to say that ecm would have mm. prevented it you know most likely ecc ram would have detected and maybe been able to correct the problem in ram and the system might not have crashed and that likely would uh, reduce the chance of an error um but uh we can't necessarily say that the ram corrupted the data uh just that you know there was some corruption after you rebooted. Uh, it's unclear if that was caused by the abrupt shutdown of the system or something else. Yeah, so in particular, he says, in other words, would ECC have prevented the corrupt data from being written to disk in the moments before the failure? We don't know that that's what happened. Yeah, that's too um, uh, uh, hard to tell from this side. And so it's hard to say whether that is what happened. Um, if... If it was the RAM and it corrupted at the right time, it would have made both copies bad. And so it would have caused unrecoverable errors. So that's slightly suggesting that maybe it mm. wasn't uh, the RAM that was the, that 
uh, corrupted the data so much as just the way it shut down or whatever. Mm. Yeah, you can run a mem check, but these typically do a lot of work with uh, the memory banks. But uh, I've yet to have one. I had one instance where it actually reliably crashed a system where the memory was definitely the fault. But the system was so old, we uh, had to recycle the whole machine anyway. Uh, but yeah, if it happens more frequently and not just this once, then yeah, exchanging the RAM might be the thing. Um, but yeah, just yeah. very often it's it's hard to put the blame on one specific thing. Yeah, it's a it's a whole system. Components work together. It turns out, <laughs> and there's a cascade effect when something falls over. Uh, but yeah, so thank you for this feedback. Uh, yes, it was able to help fill a little bit of airtime. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was definitely also good to cover it. Yeah, like the main advantage of ECC RAM is mostly that it will correct the error and prevent the system from crashing. Um, ECC is probably a bit more about uptime than it is actually about ensuring the data is correct. Although... It does do that, and that's important. Um, but especially from the ZFS side, you're not that worried about the RAM corrupting things that way. Uh, it's definitely not going to you know, mess up your whole system during a scrub or something, uh, like some people have thought in the past. Um, but yeah, if, if you're worried about the uptime of a system or just the reliability of your pool and so on, ECC is great. Um, I use it everywhere I can, but I wouldn't let the the inability to get ECC on a system, for example, my laptop, prevent me from using ZFS. Yeah, no, this is not so, a killer. ECC art. if you can, <laughs> but don't give up ZFS just because you can't get ECC. Yeah, definitely. Use it on all the systems that you can. Uh, yeah. And don't shy away if it's not an ECC system. Yeah, like what ZFS is doing is providing something even stronger than ECC for your data. Uh, you know, just how your non-ECC RAM wasn't able to tell you that it had a problem because it didn't know. Uh, every other file system that doesn't have checksums like uh, ZFS will do the same thing. We'll just keep going and not knowing that the data is giving you is wrong. Yeah. And so we're definitely on the better side of uh, your data history when running on ZFS. Cool. Next up, we have Nelson with a general thanks uh, feedback. Nelson writes, you guys do a tremendous service to the BSD community with the videocasts and podcasts. Oh, thank you. I've been watching and listening to BSD Now, starting with about episode 75, and have many times followed up news that you report on, and also learned about new offshoots in the BSD family, for which I've built virtual machines. Now more than 600, for which about 200 are running at any given time, on 8 or more physical servers with two new Dell PowerEdge R6515 boxes, soon to be put into VM server use. Oh, that's cool. That's a lot of VMs. <laughs> And here's another uh, statistic uh, to glare on. We have also just opened up access to a new large memory system, six terabyte DRAM in a power, Dell PowerEdge R480, uh, four CPUs, 96 cores, 900, <laughs> 192 threads, 2400 megahertz, Intel Xeon Platinum 8260L, intended to support large memory needs in computer algebra calculations. Ah, this is a university uh, probably or a research institution. Uh, we have five other systems with one terabyte DRAM each, but only one of those is accessible to all users in our department. That is a lot of main memory. Wow. Yep, that sounds <laughs> Imagine the possibilities. Uh, yeah, great. Yeah. Thank you for the feedback. Um, if you... That'd be a lot of ARC. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yeah. You can keep the whole... Well, 
can basically keep everything in my memory. <laughs> oh, well, God. it depends how many terabytes of data you have. You have hundreds of terabytes, six terabytes of RAM is going to keep everything. Yeah. But with compression, you can definitely keep a good eight to 10 terabytes of data in RAM, which would be great. But that's a top output we want to see. Okay, uh, we will be back. Uh, we reach out and maybe get a screenshot or something. Um, <laughs> let's look at Sam, the next one, uh, with a FOSS power support feedback or question. Uh, Sam writes, related to my question about laptops ah, from an earlier episode, from your vantage point in your open source communities, what do you think it would take for open source operating systems to develop the kind of power management that Windows and Mac users enjoy? My experience has been that surest way to finish off the new milliwatt hours left in the old laptop you're repurposing is to put Linux on it. Uh, and here getting utility out of a nine-year-old machine again makes it worth it though. It is a case of free and open source software developers being happily focused on server hardware, not caring about laptop support. Hardware vendors in league with Redmond not wanting to share proprietary battery saving magic. Uh, not enough users bothering to ask, question mark. Um, I think it mostly comes down to, it's, you know, a lot of stuff happens in open source. And a good chunk of that is, you know, people scratching their own itch, doing something to solve a problem they actually have. But the bigger majority of it is people doing stuff because they're being paid to. Uh, and that's where, that's why you see a lot of focus on the more server-side stuff. Uh, there's not really many developers being paid to optimize battery life on a Linux laptop. Um, so there's nothing saying it couldn't be done. It's just not many people have a financial incentive to make the battery life on a Linux laptop better or open source laptop. And I think part of that is also down to the hardware, uh, you know, getting the right documentation from the vendors on how to access some of the features. And some of this is maybe becoming less relevant as the power management moves into the firmware, like Intel with the new P-State stuff and so on, um, and wanting to clock each core at a different speed and so on. A lot of this power management is moving out of the OS and into the UEFI firmware. And with that, we might actually see a much less of a gulf between, you know, Windows and Mac and the open source operating systems. Yep. As more of that work becomes part of the firmware and uh, doesn't require specific support in the operating system. Right. It's a fast moving target. I mean, these machines have a lifetime of like five to six years, maybe. And there's a new version well, coming yeah, out. Yeah, but the vendor only cares about it for like the first year. Exactly. Yeah. Even shorter than that. And having it work or on this one laptop model with this one specific hardware and the other one doesn't is kind of difficult. It's gotten better in, the, in recent years. Don't get me wrong. That's certainly much better support than what we used to have. But of course, there could always be uh, something improved, maybe with uh, more open hardware or with vendors like the, uh, what's it called, the Foundation laptop? Uh, yeah. Is it called Foundation? Yeah, the Foundation. Yeah. I forget what the name of the company behind it is. Yeah, maybe that. Framework. The Framework. Framework, framework not Foundation. Um, that could be something where we could better support those kinds of machines. And it also is a plus for the but vendor. Yeah, they most of the power savings there come down to two things, what the CPU can do and what the GPU can do to save power. Mm. And, you know, maybe more of the CPUs moving into the, the firmware with the P-State stuff, uh, but the GPU really comes down to drivers and it gets complicated there. Yeah. And so if vendors would be more open in that space, they could also support more users, which would drive more sales. And so, yeah, it's a back and forth. But yeah, I think there's a lot of work coming, especially as we get into the the big little type stuff, like Intel's newer CPUs having the performance cores and the economy cores, um, meaning that, you know, there are going to be some CPU cores that 
uh, run slower, but run all the time. And then some faster ones that clock up and down, uh, and, and having the operating system and the scheduler understand how to move stuff around there, uh, might end up making a big difference for power usage. You know, as we've talked about before with laptops, sometimes it uses less power to do the work on the more power hungry CPU or, you know, put all the work on one core and speed that core up to the maximum uh, and get it work the, the work done in less time in order to use fewer total, you know, milliwatt hours. Mm. It's a new optimization target, not just performance per watt or performance in general or IO, but also power or energy efficiency. Yeah, you know, it's much more complicated when you have multiple cores and then even more complicated when those cores might not all be running at the same speeds. Uh, and it becomes a question of, you know, if I have four tasks to do, do I run each on a different core? Um, and each of those cores is only partially utilized. And then, you know, what clocks rate do I run to that? Um, or, you know, if I entirely turn off some of those cores and only use two of my cores uh, and split the four jobs up between those, do I maybe actually get used less power in the end? And it gets quite complicated. Mm. Yeah, so it is what it is. Uh, feedback and testing is always welcome for these folks to, working in this area. Um, and yeah, next year's laptop model might have a better support than last year's model. So it's always catching up. Okay, uh, that's it so far from our feedback and questions. And that is also the end of this episode. But I should not forget to mention that the call for paper for EuroBSDCon is still out. And you should submit something if you're in the BSD space. Um, yes, as, as someone on the program committee who has to pick through the talks that get submitted, uh, please submit some and please don't wait until the deadline to do it so that we can start reading them early. Yeah, exactly. So if you want to go to Vienna this year, hopefully if everything works well in September uh, 14th till the 19th, if I'm correctly guessing this out of my head, um, then submit something, a talk, a tutorial, always uh, welcome to get uh, your latest work at a conference presented. That pretty much is it for this week. Thank you for listening as always. And we'll be back with another episode next week as also always. <laughs> yep, uh, see you next week. 